This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Among the many ways COVID-19 has changed us is the ubiquitous use of face masks. This new feature on the public's face has come with some confusion and political controversy. Starting in April 2020, when the World Health Organization asserted that masks were not recommended in any circumstance, to the current public health consensus that mask wearing is essential for decreasing the transmission of COVID-19. Remarkably, this dramatic shift in public health advice was not precipitated by new scientific evidence. Mask wearing advocacy has been in large part substantiated by either observational studies, which can be marred by confounding factors, or lab observations that use droplet dispersions as proxies for disease transmission. Fortunately, the scientific community has done extensive, high-quality, randomly controlled trials on the efficacy of mask wearing in public, which appears to offer a genuine observed consensus. Given the continued vitriol surrounding mask wearing, policymakers and the public deserve the best evidence-based scientific information available to inform individual health choices and help improve the trust in the public health community so challenged by two years of a pandemic. My guest today is Harvard Medical School professor, Dr. Jonathan Darrow. Dr. Darrow recently released a 61-page paper entitled Evidence for Community Cloth Face Masking to Limit the Spread of SARS-CoV-2, a Critical Review, in which he and his colleagues surveyed the entire landscape of studies on mask efficacy. The analysis addresses the challenges of studying face mask use in populations and examines the range, quality, and scope of the mask studies to discern whether there's clear evidence to support mask wearing. Dr. Darrow will share with us the findings of his paper and help us place mask wearing in the context of other interventions, such as vaccines, to help fight the spread of COVID-19. When I return, I'll be joined by Harvard professor, Dr. Jonathan Darrow. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. And I'm now joined by Harvard Medical School professor, Dr. Jonathan Darrow. Welcome to Hubwonk, Dr. Darrow. Thanks, it's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And um, uh, we're gonna be talking about masks today, specifically uh, the uh, paper you recently released uh, entitled Evidence for Community Cloth Face Masking to Limit the Spread of SARS-CoV-2, a Critical Review. Uh, it's a very timely paper and it's a topic we're all talking about. Uh, but I, I'm under no illusions. I can already hear a few uh, uh, audience members' uh, heads exploding because we're addressing this issue. Um, so let's let's be very careful about what we talk about, how we uh, the terms we use, and the precision of our language. I want to make sure we we um, we uh, address everyone's concern, whether they are uh, advocates of masking or, or otherwise. Uh, I want to uh, dig deep into your paper's findings. So before we go into the paper's findings, what made you and your colleagues decide to write a paper on this topic? So there are already many, many studies about mask efficacy, and we actually cite maybe 250 of them, give or take. Um, but if you want to be published in the medical literature, articles typically have to be pretty short, maybe 4,000 words or even 1,000 or 600 words long. and that may be enough for most topics, but for this topic, a complex topic, a controversial topic, a topic where there are lots of relevant studies, 
uh, we wanted to give the issue of mask efficacy the attention it deserved. So the goal of the paper was to comprehensively review all or essentially all of the evidence that we could get a hold of. And, and that's what we did. We, our paper is 61 pages. It has about 24,000 words and about 371 footnotes. We looked at all kinds of different studies. We looked at laboratory studies where participants coughed on Petri dishes uh, with and without masks. We looked at mannequin studies where the researchers put masks over mannequins and then measure what happens. We looked at animal studies. We looked at randomized controlled trials. We looked at observational studies. We looked at what I'm going to call a glorified anecdote, uh, like the Missouri hair salon case that got a lot of press. There was the USS Theodore Roosevelt case, the Diamond Princess cruise ship case. Uh, we looked at studies of pilgrims on the Hajj. We looked at studies in university dormitories. We looked at Matt. We looked um, at masks through the context of different uh, diseases, influenza, influenza-like illness, or ILI. Uh, the 2003 SARS virus, COVID-19. Uh, we looked at quantitative meta-analyses, which are other groups that look at all of these studies and try to um, draw some generalizations. We looked at review articles, which is similar to our own, although almost all of the ones we looked at were much shorter. Uh, we looked at all of the citations on the CDC mask information webpage. We looked at a review of the evidence from the National Academies of Sciences, we looked at these things called Cochrane reviews, which are supposed to be among the most reliable, unbiased sources of comprehensive evidence. Uh, we looked at masks in surgical theaters. We looked at mask use on airplanes. So we really tried to look at everything. Indeed. Uh, I read the paper. Uh, it was uh, well-written insofar as a, a layman like me, I could understand uh, its, its findings, but uh, you set that up very, very nicely as, as, as far as how far and wide your, your research went. I want to sort of frame for our listeners uh, how far we've come. Until you, you mentioned early on in the paper, until April 2020, the World Health Organization uh, stated that masks were not recommended under any circumstances. And then you mentioned also Cochrane uh, until recently um, uh, a review of Influenza-like illnesses found, quote, low certainty evidence for nine, trial, for nine trials that wearing a mask may, may make little or no difference to the outcome of influenza-like illness compared to not wearing a mask with a 95% confidence interval. Uh, that we set up at one side of the uh, uh, spectrum. On the other, as recently in the height of the pandemic, uh, the New York, in New York City, they instituted a $1,000 fine for those who refuse to wear face masks in public assuming that's outside as well. So uh, we've addressed the, um, uh, the issues of, of mask wearing uh, earlier in shows, but never gotten very, very deep. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Is there uh, basics? One, one, um, one plus one equals two. Uh, we know you're at the medical school. We know that uh, uh, COVID-19 is a, um, a respiratory virus. Uh, we know that masks, it creates a barrier for the uh, particles. Uh, so why do we need to go further? We, we, we uh, A mask uh, limits what can come in or go out of our mouths. Um, why do we need to go further and examine the data? So looking at respiratory droplets is a type of surrogate endpoint. And that is an endpoint that's believed to correlate with a true measure of interest, which is a clinical outcome. So those studies show... Uh, they suggest that masks are highly effective in blocking respiratory droplets. Um, th there are a couple problems with that. One is that you don't actually know whether it correlates with the true outcome of interest. 
Um, and the other is that droplets are not the only type of respiratory secretions. Droplets are traditionally defined as a respiratory particle that's more than 10 uh, micrometers in diameter. That is to say they are large by droplet standards. Aerosols are much smaller, or they can be you know, smaller than that cutoff amount. The evidence about respiratory droplets is generally examined in the context of projections through the mask directly forward. What you don't know when you're measuring that is what is coming out, the gaps between the mask and the person's face. And this is particularly relevant in the context of cloth masks, which tend not to fit snugly on the face. So if aerosols are important in transmitting SARS-CoV-2, which it, there's evidence to suggest that they are, the effectiveness in ma of masks in blocking the droplets is not the same as asking uh, whether or not masks prevent the true measure of interest, which is the transmission of disease. So what you want to do is to actually study that measure of interest. Uh, the highest quality study type is not the uh, laboratory study that measures a surrogate endpoint, but a, a randomized controlled blinded trial or an RCT, randomized controlled trial. That involves assigning people randomly to either get an intervention like a mask or to a control group where they get no intervention. And I mentioned that they should be blinded, at least ideally, that would mean that neither the researcher nor the participant would know in which group they're in. In the context of masks, it's hard to blind participants because there really isn't such a thing as a placebo mask. So like I said, we looked at everything, all the study types. And, and what was interesting was that the highest quality study types, which were the RCTs, tended to show little or no effectiveness uh, or occasionally there were even findings of negative efficacy, which is to say that there were a small number of studies suggesting that masks could actually increase the rate of disease spread. Uh, you have to find you have to take those findings with a, a grain of salt for the same reason that you have to take the findings of mask benefit with a grain of salt. There are quality problems with almost any study, and the results can all, always occur simply by random chance. Uh, but the overall finding of the highest quality evidence was that masks provide no benefit or a modest amount of benefit in most contexts. You, you cited a whole range of uh, papers and studies that you looked at. Um, and uh, I was struck by the fact that there seemed to be a, a negative correlation between small, low quality studies, which, which generally found some effect, uh, and larger, high quality studies that seemed to be more, more um, confident and found no effect. Why would why, if you share that view, why would small studies find a positive effect of mask wearing and large studies perhaps not find that? I'm not sure that I would divide the evidence that way. What I would say is that one of the major patterns um, was that within the RCTs, there were, they tended to not find a significant benefit. I think we've, we found 16 randomized controlled trials overall, and 14 of them found no statistically significant benefit. And the two that did find benefit, one was a small pilot study, and maybe that's what you're thinking of. Uh, the same researchers who did that positive study did a much larger follow-up study, yeah. and that follow-up study failed to confirm the benefit they initially found. Um, the other one was the Bangladesh study, and maybe, maybe we'll come back to that. That was an enormous study, having more than 300,000 uh, subjects in it. That study found no benefit to cloth masks uh, but they did find a small benefit for surgical masks. 
so, so there really was not a wide dispersion among the high quality studies. Those studies tended to cluster around zero to small benefit. The, the difference came with the, the non-RCTs. So while the RCTs mostly failed to show a benefit, the observational studies usually did find a benefit. And in some cases, that was a, a large benefit. So if there's a wide divergence between the higher quality randomized controlled trials and what are usually considered to be lower quality observational studies, that should be a cue to both researchers and policymakers that there's something going on. And what I would suggest is probably going on is that there is confounding in the observational studies and that we should probably, until we have reason to believe otherwise, believe what we see in the randomized controlled trials. So I want to restate, I think, what you said very clearly, uh, that random RCTs are uh, more controlled, more carefully designed and, and uh, observed. Uh, you're saying, okay, uh, group A is going to wear a mask, group B is not going to wear a mask, and let's see the difference in outcomes. Whereas an observational study might just say, okay, this group happens to be wearing masks and this other group happens not to be wearing masks, let's compare their outcomes. In the randomly controlled test, assuming same inputs um, and same outputs, we measure no effect. The problem with observational studies is you may have very, very different inputs and therefore have to discount the uh, observations of the difference of output. Am I stating that correctly? Yeah, I think so. The, the way I would describe it is that the observational studies are subject to confounding uh, because they're not randomized. And, and what that means is, uh, for example, if you compare counties that had mask mandates to counties that didn't or states that did have mask mandates to states that didn't, there may be other differences between the population in the mask states and the non-mask states besides the mask mandate. For example, there's likely to be more political support to enact a mask mandate in a county or a state that has one. And that means that the people in that county might uh, differ in other ways. Um, so maybe people in mask counties or mask states are more willing to wash their hands or more willing to stay home, more willing to keep their distance. Maybe businesses in mask counties are more likely to close, more likely to install plastic barriers, more likely to limit occupancy, improve ventilation, use disinfectants, uh, for curbside pickup and so on and so on and so on. And so we don't know that those two groups are actually comparable. And that is the, the basic weakness of an observational study. So an observational study uh, will find a, an effect of mask wearing that may be attributable to something besides mask wearing, as you say, uh, uh, better hygiene, uh, more likely to stay home, um, more social distancing. So, so the observations, uh, it, it, there's a um, correlation, but not a... Uh, uh, causation in, in mask wearing. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Okay. All right. Now, um, when, when looking at, um, uh, the, 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 the data, how, how confident, um, or when we find no signal in the RCTs and you say, okay, there's no benefit, um, how confident, uh, or how does one measure the confidence of that no benefit? Meaning, we didn't see one, but there might well be one. We just didn't find it. Or look, we, we can definitively say in this study, there is no benefit. How, how do we measure that confidence? So that's a complicated question. But the, the short answer is that you almost you can almost never say that we found for certain that there is no benefit. What, what you say is that you failed to find a benefit. And so this is really a question of certainty. One of the issues that could happen is that the trial is very small. And so you have a point estimate that is positive, but possibly because the trial wasn't large enough, the 
positive benefit doesn't rise to the level of statistical significance. Now, even if you have statistical significance, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a 100% chance that the benefit is actually there. In fact, statistical significance is often determined at the 95% level. So even in even in those studies that reported a statistically significant benefit, there's a 5% chance, uh, perhaps, depending on how it's set up, that the result was actually just a result of chance and, and was not an actual benefit of the masks. So in every study, there's a possibility, and this is even if there's no confounding at all, that the results could occur, occur purely by chance. And, and something that I think it's important for listeners to be aware of is that that possibility increases if there's more than one measurement taken in the study. And that's actually very, very common. So for example, a study might ask whether masks provide benefit among all participants, but then also ask whether the subgroup of participants who actually complied with the protocol and wore the masks, whether there's a benefit for that group. Um, it might ask whether there's a benefit for uh, when you measure the outcome as self-reported symptoms, but then also ask if there's a benefit uh, only in those groups, uh, or only in those people who had um, uh, laboratory testing to determine whether they actually had a particular disease. So, when you slice up the data in all these different ways, it yields multiple point estimates. And for each of the studies, or at least many of the studies we, that we looked at, they they sliced up the data this way. And, and when you do that, it means that you have multiple bites at the apple, multiple opportunities to find statistical significance. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but when you have researchers who want to find a certain result, or if you have media that wants to report a certain result, it, it can be tempting, and I think we've seen this, where people will focus on the results that they want to see and talk more about those and tend to downplay or ignore the results that, 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 that showed nothing or that showed something that they didn't want to see. Indeed, I'm sure... Um... Uh, bias must be a part of uh, any study that uh, any researcher has to acknowledge and and and, and uh, try to scrub out of the study uh, any kind of bias. But let me try to shoot holes in in let's say uh, someone who hears you say there's no evidence of of uh, the effect a uh, positive effect of of mask wearing, uh, and and cite your own paper and say that. Um, uh, one study, for example, found that while only 12% of the individuals surveyed admitted to not wearing a mask, 90% were observed not wearing one, um, uh, finding the authors described as large and statistically significant discrepancy, meaning people you know, were told to wear masks, they said they wore masks, but they didn't wear masks. So that would, that would uh, result in a zero effect. I'll also mention, and I think this is perhaps even scarier, um, in a study of N95 respirators, 25% uh, professional healthcare workers failed to properly fit their masks despite knowing they were being studied and receiving instructions on how to achieve a proper respiratory respirator fit. So, you know, the, to someone who wants to say, look, I still believe in masks despite all these findings that don't see a result, it's probably because those people weren't wearing masks properly. How, how does your research account for that? Well, first of all, I, I, I have not said, and I would not say that masks have no benefit, but what, what simply what we did is we looked at all of the evidence and we, when you sum up all that evidence and you try to figure out where it clusters, it clusters somewhere around no benefit to maybe a small amount of benefit. So that, that's, that's definitely not to say we, we've concluded for sure, certain that masks have no benefit. Um, so, so that's a first point. In, in terms of the bias, there, there are biases in, uh, 
you know, everyone has their own biases that, and, and, and no researcher is exempt from that. You mentioned a couple. Um, I, I can mention, I can mention another, um, uh, you know, maybe one more that might be helpful. There, there was a, a case control study where uh, 20% of cases, which is to say those people who have the disease, wore a mask when they went outside compared to 43% of those who were not infected. So that those two figures suggest that masks are protective. But the way the study researchers identified the controls was to use sequential digit dialing, which is kind of like random digit dialing. Well, that is a method that's more likely to identify individuals who leave the home less frequently. So in other words, people may have stayed safe from the disease, not because they wore a mask, but because they were more likely to stay home. And that was simply a product of the methodology. There's all kinds of other, other problems. There's the self-reporting bias where people may um, overestimate or underestimate whether they, whether they wore a mask or the number of hours uh, during which they wore a mask. Sometimes some of the studies we looked at, questionnaires were administered a number of weeks or months later, at which point people may no longer recall very clearly what you know, the number of hours that they wore a mask. Uh, people might assume that they must not have worn a mask uh, often enough if they got the disease, even if objectively they actually wore it more than they recalled. Uh, there are other, you know, that, that's in some of the observational uh, studies or studies where the outcomes were measured by asking patients questions. There's other types of bias in some of the other studies. In the preclinical studies that we looked at, for example, where a petri dish is placed in front of an individual who coughs either through a mask or not through a mask, you're measuring the droplets in front of the mask. But if the mask diverts the jet of air to the side through, say, a gap between the mask and the skin, we don't know whether the masks are merely diverting the respiratory secretions from the person in front of you to the person beside you or the kid who's standing below you. So there's really no limit to the number of potential confounders and a number of ways that the data can be biased. And that's, that's simply a challenge of the data. Your, uh, your answer reminds me of a show we did on polling, why, why polling is often inaccurate. Uh, the people you call don't necessarily represent the voting population uh, for a number of reasons. So it sounds like a, a very similar challenge for, for, for your scientists. Um, let me, let me uh, uh, again, I'm trying to play devil's advocate and say, look, um, mask wearing, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's a function of the quality of the mask or which mask I choose. There were some studies, some large studies, you mentioned the Bangladesh study earlier that, that compared cloth masks, which appear to have no benefit with surgical masks that seem to have uh, a measurable benefit. Can, uh, can, you, can you speak to, you know, when we, in this show, we're talking about masks as if they're all the same. Did, did any study find a su substantial difference between the quality of masks? We did look, uh, a small part of our research was to look at studies that compared ma the mask types and I believe there were a, a number of studies that found no difference, which is a little bit surprising that, uh, you know, that some of these were non-inferiority studies. So the point of the trial wasn't to show that one was better, but to show that one was non-inferior to the other. But those, those did com compare cloth masks, surgical masks, and in some cases, N95s. And of course, those are not monolithic categories. A cloth mask can have multiple layers. A surgical mask can have multiple layers. They can have nose clips or not. They can have ear loops or not. So there's different ways that, that each of these mask types can be made. So this is really quite a, it's a more of a spectrum of mask types than a discrete number of mask types. And that, that does introduce a complexity. 
Another complexity with looking at masks and comparing mask types uh, is that in some cases, people will be provided with a large number of masks, and in other cases, uh, they won't. So I think there was one study where people were provided with several dozen masks uh, of the surgical mask type, but, but maybe not, not as many of the comparison mask type. Well, if you're not changing the mask as frequently, which may be more typical in the community setting, that could have a, an impact on transmission. Did any of the studies uh, talk about the, not the quality of the mask, but the quality of the mask user? How, how effective, you know, did, did, were they trained? I believe in the Bangladesh study, they, they, they instructed people on proper mask usage. Um, do studies say, look, a, a, a great mask used properly is, is effective, but most people don't use it effectively. How, how would your analysis look at that? So I don't recall any studies that looked at that exact question, but the, the study that you highlighted where the professional uh, trained workers who knew that they were being watched, 25% of them were unable to correctly fit the mask. That should give a hint of how likely it is that you can get a population of hundreds of millions of people to correctly wear the mask. And there were similar problems with adherence. So adherence meaning whether you are following the protocol or not. In these randomized trials where there are instructions given at the beginning, there are researchers who are sometimes checking in periodically with the study subjects. Uh, even in those cases, adherence was often poor. So if adherence is poor in the idealized setting of a clinical trial, imagine how difficult uh, it will be to achieve adherence in the real world. Well, I, I don't know if you know where I'm, I'm going with this. So I'm saying if, if we don't know mass uh, definitively are effective and their use is, is uh, a marginal at best, the um, quality of how we apply them. Uh, you did find uh, some studies that were uh, particularly troubling that actually found uh, negative effects or uh, that mask usage could make you more likely to uh, get sick. I think we're sort of hinting at uh, uh, possible answers for how masks could be uh, detrimental, but I, I want you to uh, address that, uh, that question uh, more broadly. How could masks um, harm us? So the, the most important way that masks could cause harm is if it leads people and policymakers to overestimate the benefit. And then decisions are made that might not have been made without the license that's perceived to be given by the presence of the mask. So maybe people who wear masks feel more comfortable going back to work. Maybe policymakers feel more comfortable opening schools. Uh, maybe people feel more comfortable going to sporting events, flying on airplanes, traveling abroad, and so on. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things, but the risk is that if we assume that cloth masks keep us safe and they don't keep us as much safe as we think they do, then we could actually be uh, worsening the situation by telling people that they're highly effective. Masks can also cause harm in a number of other ways. Uh, maybe people who wear masks will approach closer to one another. Maybe they will lean to the side of plastic barriers because they can't hear very well and they can't read lip uh, movements. Maybe people will take a clean mask, place it on a contaminated surface, such as a restaurant table, a bathroom counter, stuff it in their pocket, and then they place it on their face and cause contamination. Maybe someone who's sick will touch his or her face more often with a mask to pull it back up over the nose or to make them feel more comfortable to adjust it uh, and then contaminate their hands. Maybe masks in real world, world settings are not washed that often. 
Uh, maybe they're, uh, especially you know, on a sick individual, they're serving as homemade disease cultures, you know, carried around, touched, put in pockets, uh, transporting a disease from setting to setting. Uh, and then there are other harms that are not disease transmission harms, like the cost of providing a continuous supply of masks to a global population of 8 billion people and the environmental harms that result when those masks are eventually discarded. So I don't think we're looking at the entire picture to just assume that, well, even if there's a small benefit, it's worth the cost. We need to consider what those costs are and how big the benefit is before making a policy decision. So again, I'm not suggesting that masks have no efficacy or that policymakers definitely should choose to not have mask mandates. They, they should simply consider what the evidence actually shows, the amount of benefit that appears uh, to, to be, uh, you know, that appears to be there from the masks, and the potential harmful consequences that that flow from uh, from using uh, and purchasing masks, and then make a decision. I, you, you touched on another. Uh, I think the, the the greatest harm here of of mask uh, mandates is uh, perhaps it, it takes focus away from uh, things that work only marginally well. We've talked about uh, you're not going to assert that they're worthless, but the, their margin their benefit is 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 um, only barely me measurable, um, but rather we're taking um, focus away from those uh, uh, measures that absolutely do affect uh, the uh, spread and uh, the severity of the disease, namely uh, vaccines and hygiene and um, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, is your concern about mask wearing, uh, or maybe you don't have concern about mask wearing, but is that among the concerns of the, that masks uh, mandates or uh, advice will be harmful to the general public? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that the most important intervention at the moment is vaccines. Uh, you certainly don't want people to be thinking that they don't need a vaccine because they're wearing a mask. Uh, you also don't want people to not trust that vaccines are safe and effective because they've heard uh, incorrectly that masks are more effective than the evidence actually supports. So we don't want to undermine public trust by misrepresenting the effectiveness of masks because that can have negative consequences for truly important uh, interventions like like vaccines. Now you're a, a public health uh, professional, um, so uh, trust is is key to the success of your 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 business. Uh, we're recording today. Um, uh, I, I heard um, uh, Dr. Fauci recommend that, uh, or or state that it's likely that we'll be wearing masks on airplanes uh, indefinitely uh, into the future. Um, Notwithstanding what we've discussed here today, does a statement like that uh, risk uh, undermining the trust in, in public health officials? Uh, I, I recently uh, flew to England and back with my wife, um, and the air, airline itself stated that the odds of getting infected on an airplane were one in uh, one in 1.7 million. Um, so the airplane need, uh, air companies seem to understand it. Uh, Dr. Fauci has a different uh, point of view. Do you think there's a risk in compromising public trust in public health here? So I don't know that I can comment specifically on airplanes. There, there were a number of studies that we looked at that, that uh, um, took place or that were the setting was an airplane. Um, what I can say is that my career has been focused on uh, addressing issues of drug effectiveness and to a lesser extent, uh, medical device effectiveness, surgical procedure effectiveness. Uh, and of course, masks are a type or could, can be considered a type of medical device. So the, what I think is important is that we have to look at the evidence and then communicate what that evidence shows to the patient. It, it's not enough to say, 
a drug is or isn't effective. It's not a binary question. It's not enough to say a mask is or isn't effective. It's not a binary question. You have a right to, to know the magnitude of the benefit uh, as to the extent that the, there is evidence available to communicate that information. And I think the failure to communicate that information, whether it's masks or drugs or anything else, is the, is the act which undermines the public trust. Indeed. Uh, so again, uh, coming back to uh, the masks, um, you know, again, we're, uh, I don't know if you live within the, the city walls of, of, of Boston, but I do. We have a indoor mask mandate. Uh, and I believe uh, as early as this morning, there's now a vaccine mandate. Um, should the uh, public uh, uh, health uh, community be doing a better job of communicating um, the efficacy of, of both um, uh, and what would you say to uh, policymakers here in Boston, uh, a, a city that has uh, exemplary rates of uh, vaccination and, and I, I assume hygiene practices? Um, what would you say to uh, public policy listeners uh, of the show? What would be the most prudent course of action were, were they to consult you? You mean with respect to vaccines? Vaccines and masks. I mean, re relatively, we, we, we sort of stated earlier that vaccines are immensely effective and safe uh, and mass um, marginally so. What would you say um, uh, to, again, we're, we're talking about uh, trying to engender a sense of trust in the public health community and our, our political leaders. Uh, is there any 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 guidance you might offer, uh, uh, you know, going forward? Now, again, we're, we're recording in the, in the midst of Omicron's uh, ascendance. Uh, what would you say is a good policy um, uh, comment or a procedure going forward? So I would say based on the best available evidence, vaccines appear to be highly effective. Masks, you know, somewhere near near one approaching 100% effectiveness compared to uh, masks which are approaching, uh, if not at, 0% effectiveness. So when you have two interventions that are so dramatically different in effectiveness, and of course, we don't know the exact percentages. I'm giving you kind of a general sense of about where they are. When you have two interventions that are so different in effectiveness and you portray them as being both important to the fight against COVID-19, that is a perspective that, in my view, undermines public trust. So I, I would encourage policymakers to continue their efforts to promote the, the uptake of vaccines um, and, while uh, suggesting that, while clearly communicating sorry, while better communicating what the evidence actually shows about the effectiveness of masks. Certainly, uh, again, it may be, it may be uh, within, uh, it, it may be appropriate for public policymakers to impose mask mandates. It certainly is up to a, an individual if they want to wear a mask. Um, but to suggest that they're similar in nature to vaccines, I think, is just completely unsupported uh, by the evidence. We're getting close to the end of our time together. Uh, I have to imagine there is some controversy surrounding the uh, release of your paper. H how has the either the public health community or or the you know the Harvard community uh, reacted to to the paper? Um, uh, are, are are people cheering your um, your evidence based comprehensive study uh, uh, to understand mask usage and, and efficacy better, or are they um, looking at you as if you're uh, further confusing the uh, the uh, public health uh, messaging? You know, I'm not sure. My my sense mostly comes from what I've seen on Twitter, which is a highly non-representative <laughs> uh, sample of individuals. And my sense from from Twitter is that the people who like masks still like them and hate our article. 
and people who don't like them still don't, and, and maybe maybe they like our article. Um, but the, the problem is that I don't think hardly anyone on either side has actually read our article. I think they may have read the abstract, uh, and I'm hope, hoping that that will change in the coming weeks because what's really important about our article um, is the evidence. It, it, it is for the individual to read and consider and determine what they think about masks based on the evidence, not based on what you hear on the evening news or or from me on this uh, you know on this audio dissemination. Um, but what, what does the evidence actually show, and what does that mean for you? Whether you're an individual or whether you're a policymaker, what are you going to do with that evidence? Well, thanks. We'll, we'll have to leave it there. But first, uh, Dr. Darrell, before I let you go, um, where can our listeners who we've piqued their interest, I hope, where can they find uh, your paper uh, uh, published? So this is on the working paper series of the Cato Institute website. Probably the easiest way is to just Google uh, Darrow, D-A-R-R-O-W, that's my last name, and masks uh, and Cato, and I expect that it would come up. Wonderful. Well, I've read it. it it's great. I'll read it again. Um, uh, and uh, it's it's really a valuable piece of, of research at a time when uh, there's a, a heck of a lot of confusion. Thank you very much for joining uh, Hubwonk and, um, and helping to inform our listeners, Dr. Darrow. Thanks so much for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for future Hubwonk episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.